This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. This Torah class is brought to you by torahanytime.com. Finding the right person for you is like hitting the center of a target in an archery. To aim and hit the center takes a lot of practice. Some people may hit the center right away, but most do not. In a similar way, most people date several people before finding the right one. Some people take much longer than necessary, as we see with the incredible deluge of older singles today on the market, because something is missing in their approach, which is so key. I'll be traveling, oh, by the way, I want to put it out there that there's a beautiful Shabbaton for ages 35 to 50 in Dallas, Texas, next week for Modern Orthodox. Uh, if you need, um, if you'd like to attend, please feel free to reach out to me, and I'll give you all the information that you need to make that happen. Uh, by, so here's the problem. People are missing something in their approach when it comes to dating. By exploring this area, we can clearly see what's lacking. Imagine that you aim for the target and you keep missing. Sounds familiar, huh? Your shot is too far to the left, too far to the right. Somehow you're not, you keep missing the bullseye. By simply acknowledging that you went too far to the left, your mind will automatically self-correct and the next time you'll shoot more to the right. Through a series of attempts, your mind will continue to self-correct and you'll eventually hit the target. It's the same with dating. Each time you go out and discover that this is the wrong person, your mind will self-correct, and next time you'll feel more attracted to someone who's closer to being what you think is the right person for you. To make this self-correction in the kind of person we're attracted to or find interesting, we have to clearly experience how far off the mark was from the shot. If we're off the mark, then we know to to, to compensate a lot. If we're closer to the mark, we compensate a little. In a similar way, if someone is clearly far from our type, then we need to compensate a lot. But if he or she is close, then we only need to compensate a little. Correctly assessing someone is important for fine-tuning your ability to be attracted to the right person. You have to know what you need. You have to create a top 10 list. If you need help with that, just reach out to me and I'll help you fashion that list. Because the top 10 list is so important. It's your GPS to getting to the right one and not wasting so much time on unnecessary dating, which is going nowhere. If you were blindfolded and every time you got closer to the target, someone misdirected you, you'd probably never hit the target. To self-correct after each shot, we need to get the correct feedback. You need to be working with a dating mentor or a dating coach. It's important so they can tell you if you're close or you're far or you're lukewarm or you're way off. With accurate information, we can make the necessary adjustments in our next shot. Eventually, we'll aim and hit the target. Now, it's all how you end the relationship. How we end the relationship and how we evaluate a date are essential to fine-tuning our ability to be attracted to the right person for us. The secret of making sure one relationship leads to, to another good one, closer to what you want, is to pay a lot of attention to how you end your relationships. How you end the relationship has an enormous impact on the quality of your next relationship. Good endings make very good beginnings. When you end a relationship feeling either resentful or guilty towards the boy or the girl, it's much harder to move on to find the person who's right for you. Quite often, when a relationship ends, we may feel angry that our partner let us down or didn't fulfill our expectations. Women most commonly feel that they gave a lot to a relationship and they didn't get what they needed in return from the guy. Oftentimes, women tell me, he's not as invested in the relationship as I am. As a result, women feel resentful. Men, on the other hand, tend to feel more guilt. Exactly what I had tonight. I was dealing with a couple who's trying to get married. They're dating. It's his second time. He's divorced. It's her second time she's divorced. And he says that I need help in therapy because I feel guilt. A lot of guilt. Men feel guilt. Women feel that they didn't get what they needed in return. 
They, men feel bad that the relationship didn't turn out well and guilty if their partner felt unfulfilled. Although these dynamics, men feeling guilty and women feeling resentful are common, it can also be the other way around. Generally, the person who feels most rejected or abandoned feels resentful. The rejected feels guilty. Without an open heart, it's much more difficult to find the right person. When our hearts are open, we are able to be attracted to and even fall in love with the right person, or at least make progress in finding someone closer to the right person. When our hearts are open, we can be assured that we are getting closer to our goal. When our hearts are closed, however, we tend to repeat the same experiences again and again and again. And as a result, we never seem to get it right, because we're not learning from our mistakes. When we end a relationship with resentment or guilt, we are attracted to someone again who will help us deal with unresolved feelings and issues. Everyone has the experience of making a mistake or doing something that he or she regrets. It's perfectly normal to think back and feel, I wish I had not done that, or I wish I hadn't said that, or I wish I hadn't reacted that way, and then feel, I wish I could go back and do it differently. It's human nature to want to go back and fix things or change things that we regret. When we regret a relationship, our automatic tendency is to be attracted to another person will regret meeting. It's a, it's a horrible cycle that feeds on itself. When you leave a relationship with regret, you're going to end up having a relationship with someone else with the same thing, who you'll regret having met. We'll repeat this pattern until we get it right. On the other hand, when we feel positive about our dating experience or an exclusive relationship, we gain the ability to self-correct, even if you had to end it and move on. So it's important that when you finish off a relationship, finish off on a good note. It's so important. Otherwise, it's toxic and it leads you to someone not good for you. If you, if you finish off a relationship with resentment, with guilt, with anger, with divisiveness, instead of repeating the pattern the next time, we're attracting someone closer to what we want because we did it the right way and we ended off positively. One of the other problems we see is when people stay together too long. And I can't believe how often I encounter this when I deal with singles. Throughout the world, people call me. I have clients, thank God, throughout the world and students throughout the world and people here locally as well in New York who stay in relationships far too long. And I wonder, I say, why were you in it for too long? Because they never made an accurate list of what they needed. Had they known what they needed, then they would have, ba- they would have bailed out of the relationship far earlier. I, I, I told the story of a girl who sat with me, who had gone out 33 times with a guy, and when we did the top 10 list, there was practically not one thing on there that she needed that was good for her. And within two days, she ended the relationship. You have to know how, when to get out of something. And you have to know what's, what, what you need. And if you can't figure it out because today things have gotten complicated, well, call me. I'll help you. One of the reasons people end relationships with negative feelings is that they stay together too long. They do not recognize they are with the wrong person and they don't get it and they don't move on. Instead, they try too hard to make a relationship work. They either try to change their partner or to try to change themselves. And as I've taught you again and again, you can't change anyone but yourself. In the process of trying to fit together, they make things worse. In trying to make a relationship that is close to the right one and to the right one, they create frustration and disappointment. In the process of trying to make things better, they bring out the worst in their partner and they bring out the worst in themselves. This explains why so often after breaking up, many couples find they can be better friends. When they were together, they would fight because deep inside, they were either trying to change their partner too much or trying to change themselves too much in order to make the relationship marriage. And as a result, it just became one frustrating, resentful ordeal. After they gave up trying to make their relationship more than it was, they could relate in a much more friendly and loving manner when they were no longer going out. 
because the pressure is off. They weren't trying to change the other person, nor were they trying too hard to change themselves. When you try to fit a square peg into a round hole, it is just not going to fit no matter what you do. In the process of trying to make it a fit when, it, when it, there is not a real fit, unnecessary struggle and strife are created, which now create all types of unnecessary uh, resentment and toxicity in the, in the dating relationship. It's, at a certain point, you need to recognize when a person is not fit for you and you've got to learn to move on. And the earlier and the faster, the better. How do you know, the famous question, how do you know when someone is right for you? Quite often, singles ask the question, how do you know if someone is right? If that's the person, that's the magic person for you. If that's your intended soulmate, how do you know? Great question, I get this question all the time. And I determine a lot of these answers. Many times, many dating couples come to me and sit in front of me because I request it, because I can tell by asking a series of questions if they're meant for each other. When you ask people who know they are with the right person, they'll generally say something like, well, I don't exactly know what to tell you, I just know that that's the person that's meant for me. When, a, when soulmates fall in love, there's, there, isn't a, there is simply a recognition. It's as clear and as simple as recognizing that the sun is shining today, or the water I'm drinking is cold and refreshing, or the rock that I'm holding is solid. That's how they feel when they know that they are with their soulmate. I'm drinking... Something that's cool and refreshing. When you are with the right person, you just know. This knowing is not in any way dependent on a long list of reasons or qualifications. Soul love is unconditional. Because ava, the root of ava is hav, which is to give. You're ready to give to that person unconditionally. When the right person comes along, you just know. And you spend the rest of your life discovering why he or she is the right person. While this answer is true, it's also very misleading. Because don't go with that answer you just know. It could imply that if you just don't know, if you just know, you are with the wrong person too. This is not necessarily true. The most accurate answer to the question is that you just know when you have created the right conditions to know that that person is your soulmate. When your heart opens and you happen to be with the right person. And that comes with excellent communication. And lots of questions. And lots of digging. And lots of interesting dates and diversified environments, doing th- different things all the time. If you open your heart and you're happy to be with the wrong person, then you just know that you are with the wrong person. But you have to open your heart. This knowing who you want to spend your life with comes from opening your heart. Even if you are with the right person, you cannot just know if you do not first create the right conditions to open your heart to someone. You've got to let them into your life. You've got to open a portal to your soul. And they have to do the same thing. So they can get in there and get to really know you. They have to get you and you have to get them. Moving through the first stages of dating creates the right conditions for you to develop the ability to just know when the right person comes along. Once you're able to just know, then the easy part is to find or be found by the right person. So you know what? You have to get become sort of magnetic. Become an individual who's open, who's receptive, who's warm, who's social. And then you become magnetic so that the right person finds you. Each decision you'll make will lead you closer to hitting the target. What many singles don't understand. What is that? Many singles don't understand this basic truth. They mistakenly believe that if you love someone, you should want to have a relationship with that person. This is not correct. Not right. The closer someone is to being the right person, the more you'll be able to see him or her as worthy of your love. But still, this may not be the right person for you. 
Just because you love someone does not mean he or she is the one for you. That does not mean that they're for you because you love them. Many people become confused when they fall in love. They think that if you love someone, you should want to be together forever. If you break up, they mistakenly assume that you didn't really love them, and as a result, they feel betrayed. People don't realize that love is not enough to hold a couple together. If they discover that their partner is not right, either they feel guilty ending the relationship, or they unnecessarily focus on what does not work in the relationship in order to justify leaving. Some people automatically become more critical and judgmental to justify getting out of the relationship. When couples just don't know how to end the relationship with love, they bring out the worst in themselves and in their partners, and it becomes a nightmare. Not only is this unnecessary, but it makes it more difficult to find the right person next time. What does it take? In most cases, it takes both time and progression through, the, through, through dating before you can recognize your true life partner and your soulmate. Certainly there are games to make someone love you and you want want to marry you, but if a person is not right for you, then you will not necessarily live happily ever after. One of the reasons there's so much divorce today is that people do not move through the stages of dating properly. They want to cut corners. They rush through them or they skip some of the stages of dating. It was fine in older generations or previous generations to marry someone without first getting to know them because the need for security was the basis of marriage. People got married for security. Our ancestors were primarily motivated to find a mate in order to secure their survival and the survival of their children. In our parents' generation, they learned to be loving and grew to love each other. But this does not guarantee that romance will last. For most couples in history, marriage meant the end of romance. Never in history has lasting romance been associated with marriage. If we are to find a partner with whom our love and passion can grow, he or she must be very special, someone picked out and recognized by our soul. It is a decision made in our hearts that sometimes feels as though it was made in Shemaim, in heaven. So let's find out, how do I find my soulmate? A soulmate is someone who has the unique ability to bring out the best in you. Wonderful, wonderful advice. When you're with someone and you're dating that person for a long time, one of the questions I'll ask my clients or my students, do you think that person will bring out the best in you? Will that person help you actualize your greatest potential? That's a great question. That's your soulmate. Soulmates are not perfect, but perfect for you. While they, are, while they can bring out the best in you, without good communication skills, they can also bring out the worst in you, and vice versa. One of the things that I do with a lot of people is I practice and I teach them great communication skills. We're not just physically turned on to them, our soul gets turned on to them as well. There are basically four kinds of chemistry between dating partners. There's the physical, which we know is overplayed. There's the emotional, there's the mental, and then there's the spiritual. Physical chemistry generates desire. That's the match that lights. But how long does it last? When you light a match, it lasts but a few seconds. If you expect to depend on that for a lifelong relationship, you're sorely mistaken. Physical chemistry generates the desire. Emotional chemistry generates the affection. And we know that one of the key areas that you need to build in order to be able to produce a great relationship and to know that it's the right person is you've got to know how to build and develop emotional connectivity or emotional intimacy. Mental chemistry creates interest. Spiritual chemistry creates that love. Your, your soulmate will have all four. Here's a critical comment. Physical attraction is not enough. It's not enough. Physical attraction is very short-lived. If you want any evidence to that, just go to your local supermarket, 
Look at the National Enquirer of the latest 30 or 60 day Hollywood divorce. A man can easily be turned on by a woman who promises physical gratification without any strings. For many young men, just the opportunity for physical gratification causes physical chemistry. After a few brief encounters of physical passion, this chemistry will quickly dissipate and is gone. We're amazed to discover a striking pattern. Quite often women who are extremely attractive, who look like models and movie stars, and in some cases were, would share the same complaints to psychologists and therapists again and again. Their husbands were not attracted to them. And they were very, very beautiful women. The therapists were dumbfounded. They couldn't imagine, imagine any available men not being attracted to these women. Yet it was true. And then they realized why. These women had been pursued by men who were primarily physically attracted to them, but didn't really get to know them. <coughs> Excuse me. The, the pursuit was on for physical. That's it. When a man feels physical chemistry, quite often he thinks he knows the woman. He feels interested in her. He likes her. He thinks he even loves her. The real test is whether he still likes and loves her after he gets to know her. Although it may feel like love, it's not. When a relationship passes the test of time, the love is real. So if you think you're going to build it based on physical attraction and nothing else, that's infatuation. That's not going to last more than 30 to 60 days. And eventually that marriage is history. So these men who were, tra- who, were, who were married to these very beautiful women, who stopped being attracted to their partners, didn't betray these women. Both partners were responsible. They put too much emphasis on the physical aspect of the relationship and didn't create the opportunity to know and love each other enough to discover if they were soulmates. So after a, f- a few brief encounters physically, they didn't like each other. They could even come to can't stand each other. When physical chemistry is not backed up by chemistry in the mind, chemistry in the heart, and chemistry in the soul, then it cannot last or grow in time. Once the pleasures and passion of the body are experienced without corresponding passions of the mind, passions of the heart, and passions of the soul, the physical chemistry will dissipate. Physical attraction can be sustained for a lifetime only when it springs from chemistry of the mind, chemistry of the heart, and chemistry of the soul. So important, ladies and gentlemen. The soul and lasting love. The soul is that aspect of who we are that is most lasting. When the soul is attracted to someone and recognizes its mate, then with that person, because we experience a soul chemistry, the physical, the emotional, and mental chemistry can also be sustained. It's got to be a deep connection. Lasting physical attraction must find its source in your soul. On the level of the soul, you are the same throughout your life. The person who was a little child is the same person you are now. You are all who you are of your life. The soul is that part of you that does not change. The way you physically look, the way you feel, and the way you think about things, however, will change. The most change happens on the physical level. Everything on the physical level is always changing. We get older. We get wrinkles. We get gray hair. As we progress to the emotional level, we change less. Because that's the real depth of you. All adults can easily reflect back and still feel many of the feelings they had in childhood or young adulthood. On the mental level, change is even less. We tend to be interested in the same sort of things our entire lives. Certainly there is some change, but definitely not as much as on the physical level. On the soul plane, we are always the same. The soul is who you are when you strip away the body, when you strip away the mind and the heart. Your soul has potential that takes an entire lifetime to be fully realized. When a couple are soul mates, when their souls recognize and love each other, 
and they are attracted to each other physically, emotionally, and mentally, then this love not only can last, but can continue to grow and become richer as the years pass. When you see someone, or a couple that's been married 40, 50, 60 years, they've got this. They've built this. This does not mean that everything will flow easily and effortlessly. It simply means that you have what it takes to be successful for a long, long time. Opening our hearts. In the early stages of dating, when our hearts are not fully open to each other, we depend on our feelings of attraction and interest to find the right person. Feelings of attraction and interest can only lead us into a relationship that meets our emotional needs. Once we begin to get our emotional needs met in a relationship, our hearts begin to open and we experience real love and intimacy. As we get to know our partner with love, it still will not, is not certain that we'll pick him or her as our soulmate. We may feel a deep soul love, but still that person may not be the one. Finding a deep and lasting love does not mean that the person is the perfect person for you. When some people mistakenly assume that loving a person means marriage, they can never open up to feel the love in their hearts because they're not sure that they want to marry that person. Sometimes this happens a lot to men. A man can sense that a woman wants to know if he loves her. He doesn't want to share those feelings because if he does, she will expect him to marry her and be greatly hurt if he, if she, if he doesn't. And in movies, loving someone meant you wanted to marry them. In real life, it's not always the case. Marriage is a choice, but not like any other choice. You don't marry just any person you love. Instead, you first find love, and then you're capable of making the right choice. As we have already explored, the experience of real love for a person doesn't necessarily mean he or she is the one for you. The experience of real love does connect us to our soul. With this connection, we're then able to know what our soul wants to do. Choosing a soulmate is not a mental decision based on the pros and cons of a relationship. It's not an emotional decision based on comparing how a person makes you feel. It's not a physical decision based on how a person looks. It's much deeper than that. When our soul wants to marry a person, it feels like a promise that we came into this world to keep, and we're going to keep it no matter what. It feels as if we are supposed to be together and share our lives. When our soul wants to get married, it feels as if we have no choice. We have to do it if we are to be true to ourselves. It is this kind of commitment that we can sustain a lifetime of love. It empowers us to make the necessary sacrifices and overcome the challenges that come with marriage and with life. It graces us with the experience of incomparable joy and fulfillment. Many people mistakenly associate love with the right person for marriage because it is only when our hearts are open and filled with love that we can truly know someone and know the truth in our hearts. We can pick the right person only when our hearts are open But it's also true that we can know for sure that a person is wrong only if our hearts are open as well. With a clear understanding of this, we are then free to end relationships without feeling guilty or resentful. Because we know that what person wasn't for us. And we walk away friendly. Instead of feeling betrayed because someone loved us and rejected us, we can instead realize, yes, you loved me, but we were not right for each other. And walk away friends. I wasn't the one for you. You were not the one for me. I feel disappointed and hurt, but I can forgive you and wish you well. Now I can move on to finding the right person for me. Let's do that. Let me share a beautiful story with you. A woman, a man, a person writes, I belong to a community located in Israel, southern Israel. 18 years ago, a young immigrant couple arrived here straight after their marriage. They came with nothing and seemed to have no means of support, yet they didn't ask for help and refused any help that was offered. He did odd jobs, she gave private English lessons, and somehow they managed to pay their rent and eke out an existence. Gradually, their story became known. They were both from the United States, but she'd been born a Catholic, and he'd grown up in a town without a single Jew. 
As a child, she'd always enjoyed going to church and listening to the sermons. But in her late teens, something stirred in her soul. She started asking questions, but wasn't getting answers from the Catholic priest. She began to read about Judaism. And the more she read about Judaism, the more she felt pulled to Judaism. Her search for a more meaningful life led her to a Jewish community in the big city not far from her hometown. The more she saw of authentic Judaism, the more she was drawn to it. She discovered that in Judaism, a person has spiritual obligations from the moment he opens his eyes until he closes them. A Jewish life is filled with hundreds of commandments, mitzvot, each more complex than the next that form a beautiful mosaic. It took two years before she made the decision to move closer and convert. She began attending a synagogue where her repeated appearances and questions attracted the other women's attention in Nazareth's Nashim. At first, the questions she posed tended to be facts. Which prayer to say? What's the various customs? To, what do they mean? Then came deeper questions about religion, about faith, about Imuna, about Shabbos, about Kashrus, and so on. The women began to invite her to their homes for Shabbos, while being careful to respect her privacy. In time, she became part of the scene. When her parents noticed the change in their daughter, they were upset, but didn't try to stop her. Three years down the road, she told the community rabbis she has decided to convert to Judaism. They strongly advised her against it, as we normally do. They even gave her a book to read about the seven laws of Noah, the Noahide laws, written to convince Gentiles not to convert. If God created you a Gentile, it's a sign that that's His will. You can fulfill His commandments and be a good person in His eyes much more easily that way. Why do you want to become Jewish and take on the onerous responsibility of 613 commandments? But she wouldn't budge, no matter what they told her. As much as they tried to dissuade her, she would not budge. Two more years went by during which she underwent the process that made her look and act like an Orthodox from Jew. She prayed three times a day, observed all the commandments of the Torah, except for keeping Shabbos because she'd been told that it's forbidden for a non-Jew to observe Shabbos. The community rabbis refer her to a highly respected based in a court with extensive experience in conversions. As part of their careful process to ensure the conversion is sincere and fully kosher, the based in rejected her three times without any obvious reason, just to see if she was authentic and true that she really wanted to convert. When the Dayanim saw her unwavering loyalty, when the judges saw her unwavering loyalty to Judaism and her willingness to observe Judaism fully, like Ruth, the Amorite of her time, they ruled she was worthy of becoming part of the Jewish people. Her conversion fulfilled all the halachic requirements, and she became a full kosher Jew. Her struggles were behind her, or so she thought. She began working as a teacher in a Jewish school that served children of non-religious Jewish families. Though not observant, the parents wanted their children to learn in a Jewish atmosphere. One of the mothers, like everyone else, full of admiration for the exceptionally successful young teacher, suggested a shidduch for The boy worked with her husband as a computer programmer at a well-known company. They met, they realized immediately they were not suitable for each other. The young man was, a, was secular, from a secular family, and she was Haredi. A huge difference, and we know that when people date, if there's a huge religious discrepancy, we don't advise that. At their first meeting, they went out, they went over the differences between them, laughing at the irony of their fate, that he was born a Jew who didn't know anything, and she was born a non-Jew who now converted and knew everything. Look at life. They both agreed the meeting was a mistake and talked about how to pass on that message to the matchmaker in a way that wouldn't hurt her feelings. The matchmaker, who was secular, had, had, known how, had not known how religious she was. She had no idea how far off her suggestion was. Excuse me. When the boy got back there, he said he liked the girl and wanted to continue, but I don't think she's going to agree because I'm so far off from her in terms of religion. 
the matchmaker wasn't willing to give up her idea so fast. She got back to the teacher and told her that the boy was becoming a Baal Shuva. For that reason alone, she said, you should agree to meet him again. Because he was such a fine person, the girl agreed. It wasn't long before they decided to marry. Now they hit a snag. When they first started dating, the boy told his parents that he met a teacher in the Jewish community. They'd been very happy to hear the news, and they wanted to meet the girl. They said, son, bring her home. The visit took place. The parents were fully impressed with the girl's personality and refinement. She was obviously a quality girl. She looked it. She played the part. She was refined. She was Adin, Adel. During the meal, they asked her where she'd grown up and what her parents did for a living. She said that her parents were not Jewish and that she'd undergone conversion at one of the most important and prestigious Jewish courts in America. And the scene froze. The parents' faces turned white as ghosts. They stopped talking in stark contrast to their previous warmth and openness. The meal ended within five minutes. It was clear to the two young people that something very dramatic had just happened. They knew it was related to her conversion, but they had no idea what that, why it causes such a reaction. As it turns out, their boy, the boy belonged to a large, highly respected community that had a strict code. Converts are not accepted into the community under any circumstances whatsoever. The sad thing is that the boy didn't even know about the rule because his family wasn't even religious. Why would he even imagine that his parents who visited the shul only on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur would care about his bride's origins? But they did care. They cared a whole lot. They told their son in no uncertain terms that if he married the convert, they would cut off all contact with him and disinherit him completely. The boy was miserable. When he told the news to Sarah, the name she'd taken after her conversion, she said, I'll understand if you don't want to give up your family. It's quite okay. They said goodbye. The boy investigated his community's policy on converts. He discovered that it had been enacted in 1927 by community leaders in Buenos Aires to prevent intermarriage. In the diaspora, the younger generation intermingled with the non-Jews to an extent not previously seen. Many married Christian girls and then had them converted. In the beginning, most of the conversions were done according to halacha, but as time went on, they were not done in accordance with halacha until things reached a point where boys saw nothing wrong with marrying non-Jewish girls without even converting them at all. The source of the regulation was the position of the Mukhan Sherebi, who wrote in his Sefer Minchas Eliezer, that if the rabbis adopt the policy that allows conversion in such situations, they'll be contributing off of it into marriage. In 1935, the regulation was adopted by a community in Brooklyn, and in time it became an integral part of community life. Though there's an 80% assimilation rate among secular Jews in America, among the members of this community, where this takana takes place, even amongst those who are non-observant, the rate of assimilation is nearly zero. The young man challenged his parents' decision, arguing that since they raised him secular, they had no right to force this rule on him. From their point of view, there was nothing to talk about. They were ostracized, but they would be ostracized by the community if he marries Sarah. Subject closed, no discussion. But no, the young man became depressed, he quit his job, cut himself off from society. A rabbi in the community reached out to him. I understand you, he said, but I can't help you. These are the rules of our community. If someone does not abide by them, he's no longer part of that community. If you're so sure of yourself, go ahead with it and pay the price. If your family doesn't cut you off completely, they'll be excluded from the community. So they have to look at, watch their own backs. Two months later, the boy called Sarah with his decision. He said he thought they'd made a good match, 
and that he was ready to pay the price, being cut off from his family. Wherever you go, I will go, he said to Sarah, echoing what Ruth said to Naomi when she turned her back on Moab. Only this time the words were spoken by a Jew, non-religious from birth, to a righteous convert who abandoned her family and birthplace to become part of the sacred Jewish people. If that's the way things are, Sarah said, then you need to complete the sentence. Only if my God is your God, and you decide to keep Torah and mitzvahs in full, will I marry you. And so they married. The ceremony took place in the Frum community that adopted Sarah. It was a much more religious framework than what the boy was familiar with. Not a single member of his family or either his father's or mother's side attended. Not one. They wanted to make a first start and our small community in the south of Israel was perfect for them. They came with nothing. But she soon landed a well-paying job. He joined the kollel, children were born, and they became a family like all other families in this southern Israeli community. They barely scraped by financially, But more painful was being without a family. The children were born to them and the members of their community became their family. As they now were cut off completely. He was cut off from his whole family. And she had nothing to do with her Catholic family. The story could have ended there, but it didn't. A year and a half ago, one of our community members traveled to the United States on a fundraising mission for the local yeshiva. Amazing story. He hired a driver with lists of names to take him around to the wealthy donors who give tzedakah. They drove through one of the wealthiest neighborhoods, going from one mansion to the next. Surprisingly, the driver passed the most impressive one of all. Naturally, his passenger wanted to know why. Why are you not stopping by that mansion? The man who lives here owns a giant media corporation, the driver told him. He's one of the richest men in his community and one of the richest Jews in America. So, there's only one problem, the driver said. There's some story that happened with his son years back, and he has it, he has it in for Haredi Jews. You will never get a penny out of him. For some reason, the fundraiser insisted. Stop, I want to go in. The fundraiser got a frosty reception. Then they warn you that I want everything to do with people like you, the rich man said. What do you mean by people like me? You stole my oldest son from me by agreeing to marry him to a convert. The fundraiser wasn't put off by the harsh tone of the accusation. He sympathized with his host's pain. But at the same time, he admired, or at least pretended to admire a man who stuck to his principles. He asked him gently, how he reconciled his being non-religious with his firm adherence to this one law. Look, you're not religious. What do you care about the fact that your son married a convert? And it's not even a mitzvah, but a communal regulation that was set down by the community. The man found it difficult to explain, and the fundraiser who was smart and clever brought him around to see that it wasn't a matter of religion, but of honor and the fear of being banned from his community. And what's your son doing now? The fundraiser asked the man. He made Aliyah. He lives in the southern part of the country in a small community called... And he named the town. The fundraiser's jaw dropped. The wealthy man asked him in distress. The fundraiser started to cry. What happened? The wealthy man asked him. Calm yourself down. What's going on? He looks at the wealthy man and says, I know your son! The fundraiser said in a voice thick with emotion. He lives in our community. You talk about honor... I respect you now more, not because of your money, not because of your mansion, but if I respect you now, it's because of how great your son is. You're sitting here, far from Torah mitzvahs, and you have a problem with your son, who's careful to observe every single mitzvah, 
and whom everyone respects in the whole community. We don't respect people for their money. We're a very strong community that respects people for their deeds. And your son is one of the most respected and chashev people in the community. The man got excited and called his wife. Through tears of emotion, she asked how her son was. She asked about her, her grandchildren. She'd known they existed, but she never met them. <clears throat> because her husband had forbidden her to have any contact with her son and his wife and their, their, and their grandchildren. The fundraiser told them at length all he could about the family, because they knew nothing about her son, about their son and their daughter-in-law and their, and their children, and their grandchildren. At the end of the meeting, he said to the father, why don't you consult with your rabbis? Perhaps now after 18 years of no contact, you'll get ahead to have a relationship with your son without your status in the community being harmed. And that's what happened. The rabbis allowed the father to renew contact with his son, provided that the latter stayed in Israel and did not return to the United States. Six months ago, the entire family came to visit their lost son. 18 years, ladies and gentlemen. They didn't see each other. It was a strange sight to see a secular American family meet a typical Kolel couple, their boys with payas, and to recall who boycotted who. It was a very moving meeting. In one moment, all the barriers went down. They hugged. Despite the long years of forced separation, their hearts had never been apart. The father didn't waste any time. He was horrified by the poverty-stricken living conditions of his son and grandchildren. And the day after his arrival, he bought them a spacious villa in the neighborhood. He also made a very generous donation to the community and promised to donate a new Bet Midrash, base Medrash. There was no impassionate speeches, but those of us here in the community were reminded of the story of Eliezer ben Hyrcanus, whose father disinherited him, but eventually left him all his possessions. Here the circumstances were different, and perhaps even in contrast, but the feeling was the same. Six months have passed since then. The man bought a software company for his daughter-in-law, in which she employs 50 Kolel women. And this poor couple was instantly transformed into one of the wealthiest people in the community. He's still the same unassuming Kolel member. His wife is pious and modest. And the happy end to this story is a perfect match for this wonderful couple. What we spoke about tonight. Soulmates. When you know it's a soulmate, you know it's meant in heaven. Again, anybody would like my help in dating or shaduchim or analysis of a relationship, or if you'd like to get help in putting a top ten list, just go onto the website, or rather onto Google, Dr. Jack a Cohen, dating coach, and look up my number and send me a WhatsApp or a text and we'll make a phone call appointment and we'll set it up. Have a great week for anywhere in the world. Call Tuv. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.